It is a pleasure to be here with you. I am Vincent Hoppe. I am the pastor here at Grace and Peace Church. We've been meeting for over six months now. I don't know if you've realized that. That is that's awesome. And God has been doing some great work. And we're talking today primarily about the the values of grace and peace. And so we've been, last week we talked about the centerpiece, the cog or the center of, of everything for us, and that is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and why that is important, and how that transforms a people into uh, being a new humanity for the world. And so we talked about that. And this week we're talking about authentic unity. Authentic unity. We oftentimes those are thrown around. But Paul today in the book of Ephesians is talking to insiders and outsiders and how Jesus makes both of them into his new humanity, into his new family. Paul writes to Gentile believers throughout modern-day Turkey. He's reminding them of their unity with God through Jesus Christ in the Spirit. And unity is going to be the key word for these people and through the book that he is writing. He's stating that their unity is the distinctive mark that they belong to God. And while they were living in a fragmented society... Uh, We're talking about fragmentation, alienation, estrangement with one another, with other groups that we might have, and also in our heart. The disunity, the dysfunction that we feel in our persons. And unity is a thing that we struggle with today in our society. And Paul says to the Ephesians, your unity will testify to the truth of this gospel. But we live in a fragmented time where there's insiders and there's outsiders. Uh, Between 1941 and 1945, in Europe, a group of ethnic insiders rounded up and killed 6 million outsiders. On April 4th, 1968, an outsider fighting for civil rights was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. In 1973, in South Africa, a group of political insiders gathered their outsider counterparts, killing 3,000, making another 1,000 disappear even to this day. In 2003, in Africa, a group of ethnic outsiders staged a rebellion, killing nearly 400,000 insiders and outsiders. On August 9th, in 2014, in Ferguson, Missouri, a young man is shot by a police officer, awakening tension, racial tensions between insiders and outsiders. Do we see anything different in Christian churches? Martin Luther King Jr. said, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated time in America. We see this with Democrats and Republicans on other sides in churches. We also, I, this also hits home for me because uh, I am in a denomination where I am in like the 2%. It is, uh, ethnic minorities aren't, are there, I'm an outsider in this group. I was in a meeting the other day with 40 gray-haired white men and then me. Just, one of them doesn't match and unfortunately, that's the reality of our world, isn't it? 
There's insiders and then there's outsiders, and I'm not just talking racially, okay? I think there's, there, there's, we, we treat uh, some people like they're a Democrat, they're a Republican, that's an outsider. There's people who uh, you keep your rap with rap in country with ra- country, and so Old Town Road is just weird, okay? Those are the outsiders, okay? It is just mixing things up. And now some people will say, well, you see, this is, the, you know, September 11th just happened, Vince. And obviously religion, and especially fundamentalism, is the cause for insiders and outsiders fighting. It's, it's religion. You know, a lot of people, it, it sounds convenient to say, and yeah, there's things such as the Crusades and, such, and, and things like that where we can accept and say, yeah, that has been true. There has been religious fighting, religious killing. But that isn't the only cause. Think of it this way. How about atheistic movements? What about atheistic movement in Cambodia with, with uh, Pol Pot and the killing fields? Think about uh, a- the atheistic movement in the People's Republic of China. Think about the atheistic movement in Russia. So think about all these and how many millions of people died because of atheism. That's not religious at all. So you can't just say that religion is the only cause for this. It can be a cause. But maybe there's something deeper. Maybe we need to consider that there is something else going on. And I think what we see here in this text, and Paul hits on it, is that there is some outsiders and insiders. And Paul is saying that this word, this gospel, is for those who are outsiders and those who are insiders. So first... We need to answer the question, and we're going to answer the question, how in the world do we have authentic unity in this fragmented world between outsiders and insiders, between Democrats and Republicans, between different ethnic minority groups? How in the world do we have unity? How in the world do we have unity sometimes even in our home? How in the world can we have this? And Paul hits on this, and he starts off by saying, Therefore, in verse 11, remember. And that is the lone command in this text. And it's important because, uh, as one of my professors says, forgetfulness is a prerequisite to idolatry, to sin. And so you think about all these different little fragmented groups. We have fragmentation between those who are socioeconomic insiders and outsiders. There's racial insiders and outsiders. And then we also think about the affinity groups that we find ourselves in. We find ourselves, uh, if you're a rock climber, there's those traditional climbers and then those stinking sport climbers that are weird. They just keep, keep doing it, huh? You fall in and try it again. Oh, weirdo. Uh, there's uh, road cyclists and then there, there's mountain bikers. There's skiers and there's snowboarders. And there's, we get in these little affinity groups and then we you know, chastise those other people over there. And so Paul does the same thing but as a way to kind of wake them up. He says, remember... It was a lone commandment. He says, you Gentiles in the flesh, meaning physically, called the uncircumcision. And the word here for uncircumcision is a derogatory word, which just means foreskin. Uh, If you don't know what that is, uh, ask your parents, I guess. Um, And it it means, and the word Gentile is is translated from the word that we get ethnicity from, ethne. Nations is what it means. And so, you outsiders, you, you people over there, kind of the way they were c- called. 
You know, they're apart from God's intervention. They're apart from Christ. They're apart from a Messiah, a Savior to redeem their fortunes. They were excluded. They were excluded from the life and blessing of Israel, who were God's chosen people. They're excluded from the promises of the covenants. If you read the Bible, throughout the Bible, there is this ongoing promise that is being carried, and God does that by making a covenant with particular people throughout history. So in the beginning, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve right after they failed. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between, and he's speaking to the serpent here, between you, and your offspring and her offspring. Uh, you shall bite his heel and he shall crush your head is what it says. And so he makes this promise. Then we see in the Abram that he is given a promise that God was going to uh, make him, uh, give him land. He would bless him with children, make his name great in order that he would be a blessing uh, not just to Jewish people, not just to Republicans, not just to Democrats. No, he'd be a blessing to all people, all families of the earth. Then we see something called the Mosaic Covenant, a promise to a nation state. So, And as long as they followed God, they would enjoy life and, and God would dwell with them, and everybody would see that God was working amongst these people. And so we see this over and over, that God is working amongst the people in their unity. If there were to be a type of people to reflect God's goodness into the world. But he says, these Gentiles, though, and y'all were without hope. No Messiah, no resurrection, you're godless in the world, meaning they had no gods. Uh, not, not, not meaning that they didn't have gods, but that the gods that they had, they were weak, dumb, and powerless to save. You had them, but they weren't, that, they weren't good enough. They weren't strong enough. So these people, these Gentiles, are called outsiders. And here's something for you. Unless you can actually trace your Jewish lineage back, you and I are Gentiles, okay? We're part of the nations. You know, we're these dirty people, according to, 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 the, to at the time. But today we see people such as the migrant worker, the child living in poverty, the mother who can't seem to get her children in line at the grocery store, the unemployed, the person who can't seem to zipper merge, I don't know what's wrong with them, uh, the person with mental illness, the father with the short temper, the victims of sexual abuse, the child with the most terrible lunchbox. That was me. I had the most terrible lunchbox. I had a Willow lunchbox. Do you guys remember Willow? Whoa. Yes. That is very strange that anyone would know Willow. It was red. had red thermos. Yeah. That was, that was not going to... I don't know what I was thinking. Anyway. So I was an outsider. But here's the deal. A lot of us struggle with shame. A lot of us who are outsiders feel like we can never, ever tell anyone what was really going on. We never, ever tell anyone what, what we're deeply scared of, what we're afraid of. And we feel like when we come into churches, we come into any place, we feel like we have to put on airs and make ourselves look good and do good things and say that I am appropriate to be in this place. I have made myself good enough to be here. But that is the exact 
opposite of what Paul is saying. He's saying you could not make yourself good enough. Rather, God himself and the person of Jesus Christ came down and he was good for you. That is the goodness of the gospel. And he says, no need to hide in shame anymore because everybody that you are sitting next to has got it too. If you're in church, if you call yourself a Christian, the thing you have to do is confess that in some way we're all hiding out and we all need a Savior to come get us in the deepest, darkest places. That's the heart of the gospel we need to confess. And so he says, remember. The danger is that all of us forget that we were all once outsiders and powerless to rectify our situation. We try to do this. We try to rectify our situation. We try to make ourselves approvable by our effort or elevating our culture, uh, placing our identity in our race, our ethnicity, placing our identity in our job, our grades, our political party, our denomination, I would never think that the PCA is the greatest denomination on God's green earth, but I do. Into a means for acceptance. We want to be accepted because of all the things that we've got. We try to make ourselves insiders, but we need to remember, all of us, when it comes to the kingdom, all of us are outsiders of the kingdom that needed to be made radically into insiders by Jesus Christ. So this text is also for insiders. And the insiders in this text are Jews. Notice the tone, the so-called circumcision made by hands, which is often a term for turning to another god, for idolatry. They prided themselves in these ethnic badges of identity. Ethnic badges of identity. So they believed when God would come and visit the people, that he would rescue them, and that he would come to the aid of certain people that had these ethnic badges of identity. One of them was circumcision. It was a physical sign of their inclusion, of being embraced. It was their insider status. It was their state championship ring, their letterman jacket, the uh, letter of recommendation, their acceptance to a great school, the native sticker on the back of their SUV. It was their badge of honor. The other one that they had was the Torah. It was the law that made them distinct. It was, uh, and the law was there to designate them and show that they were a people distinct from the other nations, that their God was the true God, and that in that, that they would, that everyone else would see them and be, say, man, they, God is really working in them. Instead, they used it as these ritual purity laws to become a basis for exclusion to outsiders, especially the Gentiles. And it was so much so that in the temple at the time, they had a little partitioning wall about yay high saying, uh, unclean out there, clean Jews in here. So there was a little partitioning wall. Another Another one of their ethnic badges was they had the temple. It was the place to meet the one true God, but Gentiles were not welcome. Although their entire existence as Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, they were like, those Gentiles are ugly, those outsiders. They were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. Instead, they looked down 
at their, they look down their noses at the nations. Instead of being uniting, a uniting factor in the world, they were a fragmenting people. It was a source of division for them, the temple. So, uh, what were they doing? What were they doing in all these things? They're like, I've got these badges. Here's my resume. They were building their identity on their ethnicity rather than God. They're saying, here's my resume. This is what I've got. And when God comes, he's going to see my resume and see what I've got, and God's going to love me. And it isn't too infrequent that we do the same. See, insiders ask themselves this question, what can I do for God to get him on my side? Rather, a Christian should ask, what can I do for God after he has done everything for me? What in the world can I do for God after he has done everything for me? See, in Luke's gospel, uh, we see, and we talked about this last week, the prodigal son. We see one son who is the outsider. He took all his belongings, he squandered it. And he heads back to the father who depicts God. And the father runs out the road. He embraces him. Before he can get this eloquent speech out the son, he puts a ring on his finger, robe on his back, and he's killing a fatted calf. And everyone's invited. And people are already carting the wine down the road. And they're ready to have a party. But then the insider son who done everything right, who did everything right, he's standing back there going, what in the world? Don't you know my resume? I should be the one getting the fatted calf. And you don't even you don't even give me a young goat. I don't know, like in Missouri, they'd probably be like a young squirrel, you know, and so but you know, and he he says he says the the insider's the one who stayed home, did everything that he was required of him. And so what he had done, the insider said he'd built his resume on doing the right thing, on being really religious, never taking a foot out of line. And he said, I'm approvable because of it. Rather, we need to remember, we were not approvable. None of us. And so that is what happens, though. We start to commit what is known by by this pastor named Timothy Keller, the slippery slope of the heart. We start to commit this. When we build our identity on ethnicity, Race, political affiliation, athletic ability, physical appearance, health, our music choices, our denomination, etc. We are liable to commit the slippery slope of the heart. What is the slippery slope of the heart? First, because of anything, we start to feel superior. Like I'm better because of X. Because I snowboard, I am better than those blasted skiers. You know, and then we start to separate ourselves. Um, skiers will say, "Those stinking snowboarders! I will never get on a chairlift with them because they will destroy me." Um, and so we create an us versus them. Notice we created the insider versus outsider, and then we will caricaturize other people. We exaggerate their defects. We say, "Oh, they're so godless." those Democrats, those Republicans. And we characterize them. We exaggerate how bad they actually are. 
in order to make ourselves feel better. We start comparing them to ourselves. And then lastly, we will actively or passively oppress them. We will actively or passively oppress them. Notice when we're in the insider position, we compare ourselves. We point out the faults in everyone else. And generally what it is, is to cover up our own insecurity about our standing in the world. We use it to cover up our insecurity about our standing in the world. Those people over there, they're the real sinners. But if your security really truly is that Jesus Christ's resume applies to you, that you have Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' goodness, then you're free to say, I'm messed up. You don't need to compare yourself and point out the flaws in everyone else in order to elevate yourself. You don't need to do that. You don't need to live in this constant state of insecurity, this constant state of anxiety, believing that somehow God is going to get you. God's going to find out how messed up you are, and then he's going to kick you out. Or uh, you think about this, uh, if you're in a relationship, you always put your, your best foot forward, especially before you're married. You're like, you're the greatest, like, um, um, uh, Tinder profile in human recorded history, you know, like, this is amazing. Um, and, and then what you end up finding out is, uh, in the end, if, it, you know, like, you, you keep performing is, you cannot possibly keep that up forever. You can't live according to your Tinder profile? Are you kidding me? I can't even live up to my, like, like my MySpace page from, from like, 2000. <laughs> You know, I just can't do it. You know, it's embarrassing. I can't, you know, you, you can't present yourself that way. And think about it this way. If you cause another person to actually live according to all your insecurities, if that person is making you feel right in the world and that they have to perform, think what happens. They, they can never put a step out of line or you're going to blow up and eat them. Why? Because your security in the world is on the line. You're causing that person to perform for you. They can't be real. There's no authenticity there. You're not a real person. You're a social media profile. Terrible that is. You can't live that way, and you can't force other people to live that way either. Paul says, remember, you are all outsiders. Uh, Back in the day, we didn't have social media profiles. There were these things called baseball cards at one time. Uh, baseball cards, uh, you know, my favorite one, you, you could always gauge like who is a good baseball player by their batting average. And the batting average of some of these guys, I remember this dude named Mark Lemke, second base of the Atlanta Braves in like 1991. Uh, Mark Lemke had a career batting average of 238. And if you know anything about baseball, 238 is like putrid terrible. You know, it is terrible. And, but here's the deal. Like, he was real. It was on the back of a baseball card. There's some authenticity there. You know, no one on their social media profile is like, you know, I made it to I play baseball. I bet 238. No one, who's going to put them in the bet 238? Or like, like, I drive a 1996 Saturn. You know, no one's going to put that on their social media profile. Here's the deal, okay? You can't be authentic this way. If you're always trying to live life as an insider, always trying to approve yourself, always trying to make yourself good enough, Paul would say that the seeds of exclusion, though, and hatred are all planted deep inside of our hearts because we all want to be insiders. 
We become indifference to sin. You know, an indifference, though, it may not be the sin of commission, but it's certainly a sin of omission. We're indifferent to outsiders. You know, uh, and so how in the world are we going to be good to other people? How do we give our time, talents, and life for other people? What is the motivating factor? How in the world can we be inconvenienced for the increased convenience of the outsider? What is the hope for both insiders and outsiders to be embraced? Paul says, Jesus. Jesus is. Notice it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And two questions are answered in verses 14 through 18. What is the basis for a Christian hope? For, for, for a Christian hope of embrace? How in the world are you going to be embraced? And what is the purpose? And both of them are Jesus. He's the primary subject in the, these verses. Notice the audience is passive. God is doing the work. It is his resume on your behalf is your acceptance. It says, by Jesus' blood, it satisfies the basis for ritual exclusion for both Jew and Gentile. So blood was used in order that a life must be given in order to enter into God. Because our sin, our sin was excluding. And what is the wages of sin? It is death. Life needed to be given. And Jesus gave his life and allows us to enter in. So what is our peace? It says Jesus is our peace. And at the time, the people would have been familiar with this idea called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So war was at this minimum, mostly because everyone else was, because a bunch of Romans were walking through their town with a bunch of swords, and if you would have like t- taken a foot out of line, they would have cut you up, all right? And so there's still hostility. There was like, they were relying on this political peace, you know? They, everyone thought Caesar was bringing this peace, that the emperor was bringing peace. He was the declaration of the coming kingdom. Oh, it's Caesar. No. Paul, in not-so-subtle way, is saying, Caesar is not your peace. Financial security is not your peace. Your health is not your peace. Your ability to live an authentic life is not your peace. Jesus is your peace. Jesus is the true political peace, the true kingdom that we are desiring. And this peace does not come simply out of the cessation of hostility. No, it is through the inbreaking of heaven coming to earth in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the peace. The way life ought to have been. Peace between man and God and between man and man and woman and woman and woman and man. He is the peace. And today we say, oh, come on, Vince. Racism, classism, sexism, those things are, are things of, of the past. You know, we're in a post-everything society. We don't have to worry about those things. Uh, contrairman frere. Hey, you know, we look at the news. You know, walk through hillside neighborhood. Walk down the street, hang out with a Red Sox or a Yankees uh, fan, and you'll know that there are still fighting. There's still hostility between insiders and outsiders. So what is the hope? What is our hope of being embraced? It's Jesus. It doesn't mean that we've arrived here at the church, but we are progressing. Notice it says in the text, we are being built. Being built. Not built. Boom. Done. It is being built. 
and is all of our relationships. Because Jesus' forgiveness, we have the basis to forgive. We have the basis to confess. We have the basis to repent. And on top of that confession, it, you know, we, we build upon the confession of the prophets and the apostles, and they were pointing to Jesus. It says, Jesus breaks down the dividing wall. So the law and its ordinances, its ritual purity, were restricting those who can enter. It was so that Israel would be a distinct geopolitical entity, a distinct people who lived under the law of God, and it was to shine a light to everybody else to show them that this is the way God was meant to be, that, that this is the way life was meant to be, and this is the way people were meant to be. But all of a sudden, we see now Jesus take it on because he's the true new humanity, and he has abolished the dividing wall of hostility in its law and in, in, in understood in the law and its ordinances. So it's not your good deeds, it's not your work, it's not your religious participation, it's not your good looks, it's not your good feelings, it's not your political association, it's not your sexual orientation that gets you in. All those things are that default mode of the heart, trying to build our identity on anything other than God. These things build up walls between those who are inside and those who are outside. And Jesus tore down all means of exclusion. He destroyed the dividing wall. Destroyed the dividing wall. And it is a work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul says, through him, Jesus, we have access in one spirit to God the Father. In verse 22, he has very, said very much the same thing. In him, you are being built together. And it's far from human effort. It is the work of God. What's the purpose? To make a new humanity. And John Stott says, Alongside his destruction of these two enmities, Jesus has succeeded in creating a new society. In fact, a new humanity in which alienation has given way to reconciliation and hostility to peace. And the new, in this new humanity... United in Christ is the pledge and foretaste of the final unity under Christ's headship to which Paul has already looked forward to in verses 1-10, which reads, God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Jesus puts together a ragtag group of people, insiders and outsiders, ethnic minorities and the majority, rich and poor, Democrats and Republican sticks them together in this family called the church in order that they would be a foretaste of his kingdom. This is the way it is ought to be in a fragmented and estranged people. It is to you are to be reconciled to God. So we are one family. We're not insiders or outsiders, but we're authentically one family. In verses 19 through 22, Paul concludes by telling them that they are no longer strangers or, or aliens, but members and heirs of the heavenly family. They are no longer outsiders, but, Christ, but with Christ that they are all insiders. It is the unity of outsiders and insiders together that is to deposit the pledge of the world of heaven, er, the world of heaven coming to earth, God's temple, God's meeting place. And so here's the deal. Outsiders, whenever they come and look at the church, they ought to see a bunch of different people together, different types of people, people who have no reason to hang out. 
and take a look at them and say, oh my goodness, how is this possible? And that they would know that God who dwells in unity in eternity is with these people. We haven't, been, we haven't arrived, but Jesus is the cornerstone, meaning that we're all being aligned to him. He was the real insider who welcomed outsiders like tax collectors, prostitutes, and lame men. And we too are to welcome those who are outsiders like immigrants, illegal aliens, those of the LGBT community, alcoholics, etc. We must confess our sin, our shame, our need, our outsiderness. This does not mean that we give up our standards of holiness to do things the way God is meant for us to do. No, but like any family, there's grace, but there's standards. This is the way the family's to be. They're growing them into a dwelling place of God. Pastor Scott Saul says it this way. Jesus was a first century Middle Eastern Jew who, according to the Bible, was not physically attractive, had no money, was sometimes homeless, hung around with sketchy people, and never spoke a word of English. Those of us who grew up in the West are different from Jesus in almost every way, generationally, geographically, ethnically, socioeconomically, vocationally, linguistically, and more. In a very real sense, we are the ends of the earth that he was talking about when he delivered the Great Commission to his disciples. In spite of how radically different and other we are to him, he has extended his welcome to us. He has invited us into his circle. If that doesn't compel us to think twice about gravitating toward only people who, who think, look, dress, and live like us, what will? You see, the story of the gospel is that Jesus, the true insider, came and died like an outsider so that you can be an insider. You have his insider status. So outsiders, you can be embraced because Jesus Christ was cut off from humanity. He was the one who was left out. The hostility of insiders and outsiders count for nothing because Jesus killed the hostility on the cross. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we remember what exclusion gave us. Because Jesus was excluded on our behalf. He took all of our outsiderness, put it on himself, and was taken outside of the city and put up on a cross. Killed like a rebel for his people. He became an outsider on our behalf. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember what exclusion gave us. It gave us an embrace into God's family and to each other. Um, there is this ancient art of kintsugi, which is a Japanese way of putting back together ceramics that have been broken. Uh, I wish I would have known this as a child as I was breaking my mother's china every once in a while, but she forgives me. The ancient art of kintsugi is when an artist will take gold and then lay it into the broken pieces of the ceramic to make a new work or new piece. And so what we have in all of our hearts is this fragmentation, all these broken pieces. 
And we live in this fragmented world. But somehow in the cross, Jesus who took away everything, took all that away, inlays the gold in between those broken places. And it becomes beautiful if you're willing to let him do it. And so what do we do? We confess our brokenness and we take the broken pieces of our lives to him and we say, what can you do with this? And he'll inlay it with gold and it will be precious and stronger than it ever had been before on its own. Let us pray. Our gracious God, I pray that grace and peace would symbolize authentic unity. And as we take from this one loaf and we break it apart, we, I pray that we would remember him who was broken apart for us on our behalf. And I pray that we would be transformed and have unity, real unity, that we can confess our brokenness with one another and our need for Jesus. Lord, I pray that this would be a truly authentic moment where we confess our brokenness and our need to be made whole by him who is broken apart. Lord, be here now and nourish our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and Let us confess our faith in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Here at Grace and Peace, we come forward to the table, and you're welcome, not by me, but God himself, who invites his people to come and partake of his broken body on their behalf. So we come forward, and you'll come through this two areas right here. You'll get bread, you break it off, and you eat it. There is gluten-free on the table. You take the bread, you eat it, and then you'll be offered... uh, wine or grape juice which is on the outer ring as a symbol of his life given to you and you partaking of his life and so we we want you to do this only as you believe if you place your faith in jesus christ if you believe that his body was broken for you that his blood was shed for your blood And that his life now has become your life in your taking of it. That his body has become, you're part of this body, God's people, in your eating. If you have professed that, that you need Jesus Christ, then this meal is for you. But if you have not 
confess that. If you have not professed that, we don't want you to do anything inauthentic to where you are spiritually. We ask that you observe and see what's going on. It's nothing magical. There's no floating unicorns or anything like that happening. But God is meeting with his people and inviting them to dine with him. And so it is a sign and seal. So let us there proclaim our faith is signed and sealed in this meal. Christ Christ has died. Christ Christ is risen. Christ Christ will come again. This is an invitation. For on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Likewise, after supper was ended, Jesus took the cup and after... He took the cup and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you do in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his death on our behalf until he comes again. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us to proclaim your goodness on our behalf, your righteousness for us. And I pray, Lord, that as we eat and we drink, that we would be transformed more to be like Jesus Christ and that we would reflect his goodness into this world as we take it back to the workplaces, that we may demonstrate a unity that can only be explained by God has shown up on earth. Help us, Lord. Meet meet us now in this meal. In Jesus' name, amen.